2: Hey, guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday. Always happy to have you on board. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Please follow me on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, you can reach me at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Drop me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. I always love hearing from you guys. Okay, coming up here in the days and weeks ahead. Um, we're going to speak with actor John Schneider, Bo Duke of the Dukes of Hazard, a solid conservative, a man of faith. He is going to be here with his latest projects and his view on the state of the world. Remember, when the Dukes of Hazard premiered, it was the late 1970s. I think it was 1979. Uh, and then that show ran into the early to mid-1980s. The world was a very different place. So we're going to talk to the great actor John Schneider about all of that. Plus, Liz Wheeler is going to join us. She's phenomenal. Dinesh D'Souza with his new movie about how America has turned into a police state. We will also have uh, Dr. Alvita King joining us about the state of the country. Natasha Owens, who did the huge song, Trump Won, She's a major country music star. She's going to join us here later in the month. Bill O'Reilly is going to be here with us. We have so many lined up, phenomenal shows. You're not going to want to miss a second of it, so make sure you tell everybody. Today, we were supposed to speak with Anna Paulina Luna, phenomenal congresswoman, freshman, but you know what? She had to reschedule, and I understand that because she literally just had her first baby. (laughs) And the House of Representatives is, of course, uh, dealing with some things at the moment. So Anna Paulina Luna is going to be rescheduling with us. She's not going to join us here today. But you know who is? Congressman Bob Good of Virginia, who he's going to be here in just a couple of minutes. He is one of the eight heroes who voted to remove Kevin McCarthy as Speaker he is going to join us he's going to explain his vote tell us why he voted to remove McCarthy and one of the big things I want to know is was McCarthy warned did these Republicans like Congressman Good like Congressman Gates did they warn McCarthy that this was coming and did McCarthy just blow him off Obviously, to my mind, they did not take this nuclear option lightly, and they did not just do it out of nowhere, right? Obviously, I think they spoke to him over these last 10 months like, hey, man, what are you doing? You're not abiding by your promises to us and to the American people, and if you don't, there are going to be consequences. We will pull this trigger. And what, did he not take them seriously? Did he, did he call their bluff? What happened here? We're going to get into all of it with Bob Goode because he's been in the middle of this. He's a total hero. We're going to talk to him. Also today, another hero, Darren Beatty of Revolver News is going to join us with the bigger picture of where we go from here and really the, the strength of the America first populist movement. The fact that we got this major scalp this week. That is huge, and we will take our victories wherever we can get them. Darren Beatty is such a smart thinker. He was a former uh, speechwriter for President Trump. He's a big thinker, and we're delighted that he's going to join us here today as well. So big shows coming up. But first here today, the Monica Memo. When Democrats are in power, they exercise raw power. When Republicans are in power, they can't even tie their shoelaces. Most of the time, except for this time. This time, a few Republicans actually exercised raw power. That's what's made the, the populist revolt against Kevin McCarthy so striking. A few brave, principled Republicans actually actually exercised raw power. And because they did that, everybody was stunned, including Kevin McCarthy. Nobody expected this. In fact, at one point, Kevin McCarthy tweeted uh, earlier in the week, he was like, bring it on. Well, be careful what you ask for because you might get it. McCarthy tweets, bring it on, to which Matt Gates replied, just did, when he filed the motion to vacate the chair. Something that has not been done in the history of this republic. So McCarthy probably underestimated all these people, did not think that they had it in them, did not think that they had the votes, but they exercised raw power. And the entire uni party, the entire establishment were even more stunned when the Republicans won because Republicans almost never win. I'm sorry, but they just don't. They don't have the numbers. They don't have the institutional control. They don't have the backup of the propaganda press. They they get uh, weak. They lose their nerve. They back off. They cave. So they almost never win based on principle. And this whole battle was David versus Goliath. And Matt Gates, with a political slingshot, took out the person third in line to the presidency. Raw power. Exercised by a few principled Republicans on a mission for the people. It's shocking because it's so unusual. Well, maybe not anymore. Welcome to the new right. Welcome to the new normal. Kevin McCarthy bit the dust thanks to these eight heroes. And McCarthy has now become the shortest serving speaker since 1876 and the very first one to be forced out of the job, making history, but not the kind of history he wanted to make. He just got fired in front of the entire world. There was a poll taken before his ouster. 24% of U.S. voters said removing him would be good. 26% said it would be bad for Congress. And a whopping 41% said it wouldn't make any difference. No difference. So there you have it. Okay, the American people just want their country saved. And if you're not going to do it, I'm sorry, but we have to bounce you. We got to bounce you you're gone. And now, of course, they're going after Gates. They want to remove him from from Congress. They want to expel him from Congress. So they're all circling the wagons, looking for any kind of pretext along with the Uni Party and the deep state to remove him. They're going after him like crazy, of course. And the new speaker better toe the line, but the uni party is also, and and you got Mitch McConnell on the Senate chiming in on the House side, oh, you got to change the rule, no more motion to vacate. You can't make it too easy to remove congressional leaders. Yeah, dude, because you're next. See how they all protect each other? And by the way, speaking of which, the speaker pro tem, a guy named Patrick McHenry, who's got one of the best names in Congress, but, you know, he's kind of a Republican Party guy too. He's in there as a temporary speaker. One of the very first things he did was bounce Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, her number two, out of their, quote, hideaway offices. So when she lost the gavel, she left the main speaker's office, which is this gorgeous corner office in the house. She did leave that, but she kept a speaker's hideaway office that also should have gone to McCarthy, like on the other side of the Capitol. She kept that, and Steny Hoyer kept his too. Why? Why? Well, I don't know fully, but the speculation is because McCarthy and Pelosi made a deal. And the deal was that if there were ever a motion to vacate the chair, that Nancy Pelosi would deliver the entire Democrat uh, caucus to support McCarthy and keep him in there. And when that didn't happen and McCarthy was toast. The new speaker pro tem dropped the hammer on Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and evicted them from their hideaway offices. But the question is, uh, uh, maybe that's the explanation, maybe not. We'll get more on this as time goes by, I'm sure. But what other explanation is there for Kevin McCarthy to allow Nancy uh, Pelosi to keep her speaker's hideaway office? That should have been his space. Why did she keep it? Why? I'd love to know the answer. Was it just uniparty civility? That might even be worse than some sort of secret deal. We are in a war for the country, guys. The other side is literally at war with us and at war with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and free market capitalism. And our side is playing tiddlywinks about, oh, okay, well, for civility's sake, I'll let you keep your office. What? Nancy Pelosi bounced everybody. That's what they do. They exercise raw power. And our side almost never does. That's why this week, what happened here was extraordinary. Yes, we're going to get a new speaker. It might be President Trump. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Like I tweeted yesterday, I was like, well, imagine a Speaker Trump telling the judges in his bogus harassment cases that he can't make it to court because he's presiding over Joe Biden's impeachment. How delicious would that be? He could defund the weaponization of government. He could defund Jack Smith's bogus harassment cases against him. He could uh, make sure that the border got money. He could defund Ukraine. I mean, the guy could do so much as speaker. It would be unbelievable. I don't think it's likely. I think we're likely to get somebody else. But it's fun to fantasize, right, about a speaker, Trump. (laughs) Absolutely would be amazing. People are like, oh, that's unthinkable. How many unthinkable things have happened over the last 10 years, from COVID to stolen presidential elections to you name it? So come on. Um, This victory this week, absolutely huge. Next week on the show, we're going to be all over this because next Tuesday, they are going to do the uh, speakers like conference where the candidates, including Jim Jordan, uh, you've got Steve Scalise. Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, maybe President Trump, maybe others, I don't know. But all of these people are going to begin to make their cases to the Republican conference about why they should be speaker. That's going to happen next Tuesday. And then I believe the vote is going to happen next Wednesday. So you are going to want to be here on this show uh, because we're going to have full coverage of all of this. But make no mistake, what we witnessed this week was absolutely huge, a major victory, and we all need to savor it. But today is a work day. The moment after Kevin was bounced, work day. The other side never relents. The other side never stops. They wage this war against this country 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, for years on end, decades on end. So while we appreciate this moment and all the heroes, including Congressman Bob Good, who's going to join us here in a moment, we understand that this is just the beginning. Oh, Monica, it doesn't matter who the speaker is. Everything sucks. Well, yeah, everything sucks, but it does matter what kind of leadership we have. It's not that we worship these politicians or put all of our eggs in their basket. We absolutely do not. This is why we cover the culture on this show and the weaponization of all of our institutions, the weaponization of our culture. This is why we've had uh, critical actors on this show trying to make a difference like Jim Caviezel and Kirk Cameron and Kevin Sorbo. This is why we're going to have John Schneider next week. This is why we support these things, why we're going to have Dinesh D'Souza with his police state film. Because we're attacking things from all sides. We don't just look to Capitol Hill or to our politicians to save us. Nobody is coming to rescue us except for us. It rests with us. And we know that on this show. But when we score these victories, appreciate them, exult in them, take joy out of them, but understand it's one victory in a very, very long and complicated war. Now, before we turn to Congressman Good, I just want to remind everybody to take heart because we are winning. Again, this is a, a long-term project as any case of like turning around a battleship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean would take a while. This is taking a while, but I want you to take heart because we really are making huge progress. As D.C. Drano has pointed out yesterday on Twitter, we primaried nine out of ten congressional rhinos who voted to impeach President Trump. They're gone, including Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. They're gone. Those are big victories. We made Ukraine funding toxic. In fact, Jim Jordan, who's running for speaker, he's like, no more Ukraine funding. If I'm elected speaker, done. Done. That was a major deal. That is a major deal because nobody wanted to touch it because everybody in Washington's getting rich off of the major money laundering operation going on here. So it's a third rail. Ukraine funding, oh, that's sacred. Well, thanks to all of us, we made it toxic. And the Ukrainians are freaking out. Zelensky, freaking out. There was a story yesterday that Zelensky's wife dropped a million dollars at Cartier. On high end jewelry. Mm -hmm. Where is she getting that money? We know from you and me, the American Treasury. We made open borders and election fraud top voter issues by honing in on them on shows like this, on social media, talking about it endlessly. Now voters are paying real attention to these issues and they want answers and they want to change. Mitt Romney is not running for re election. Another major victory. We've built up this entire MAGA media ecosystem, whether it's this show, Steve Bannon's War Room, there there are others out there, and on social media and Substack and everything else, we've got a media ecosystem where people can go and get the truth unfiltered. And now we've just booted the most powerful establishment figure in the GOP from the speakership. So take heart and be optimistic, because while the challenge is extensive and deep and dark, America First is on the march. We are racking up victories, and we are never going back to the party of being controlled opposition losers, ever. All right. Well, for the very latest on the much-needed disruption on Capitol Hill, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Congressman Bob Good of Virginia. Congressman Good is a member of the House Freedom Caucus and he serves on the all-important Budget Committee among other committees. His website is bobgoodforcongress.com, so please go check him out and support him however you can. He was one of the 8 Heroic Republicans who voted this week to remove Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and he joins us now. Congressman, welcome.
1: Great to be with you, Monica. Thanks for having me this morning.
2: Well, I'm so happy to have you here during this momentous week because this is just the latest expression of a populist revolt. That really has been going on since the great silent majority and President Nixon gone through the Reagan revolution, through the Tea Party movement, through America first. And now here we are. So I want to thank you for your time and for your courage in voting your principles and your conscience and your country and your constituents. So, first of all, uh, Congressman, tell us why you voted to oust McCarthy from the speakership. It was a very controversial vote. You're getting a lot of slings and arrows. Why did you do it? Well, try to give you the quick
1: version of that. When I was running for the first time back in 2020, I got asked a lot by voters, uh, was I going to support Kevin McCarthy for Speaker if, if we were to win the majority in, in November of 20? And I said, uh, and, and while I had reservations and skeptic, skepticism that I would do that, I said, I will wait and see who he's running against. And uh, listen to the candidates and make my case. And I was kind of surprised when I got there in November of 20, how there's, you get to right after the election, they bring you in as a new freshman and you have a quick election of the, and there's really only one, there was only one candidate for what it was minority leader. Cause we didn't have the majority obviously. And there was no one else that challenged. I expected we'd have a conservative challenger, or at least a contest and y'all just vote right there in conference and everybody supported them. And so I went along as a new freshman then when I got asked as in my first term, you know, would I support him if he became speaker, you know, if we were to win the majority in 22? And I said, I will assess him based on what he does. And does he does he use every tool at his disposal when we're in the minority to fight the Biden Pelosi Schumer agenda? And I did not see that happen uh, in my first term. And so that's why I did oppose him for speaker back in January. And because during the 12 years he had been in, in a leadership position. All the major spending bills, you know, what really matters when we had had majorities and he was in leadership as whip or majority leader, were passed with majority Democrat votes, something the Democrats would never do. And so once he became Speaker uh, back in January on the 15th ballot, I tried to support him. I went to see him and pledged my support for him, told him I would do everything I could to help him be successful because the country needed him to be successful. But we expect him to keep the commitments he made to become Speaker. He failed to do that on in, in in many facets, you know, we never brought a balanced budget to the floor. We didn't bring our 12 spending bills to vote on uh, before the September 30 deadline. Uh, he, he caved on the debt ceiling increase uh, you know, around the 1st of June when it was passed with predominantly Democrat votes, keeping in place all the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer spending with an unlimited increase through January 25. We'll probably be at $36 trillion by the time we get there. And then the ultimate, the ultimate was... This past Saturday, when he brought the continuing resolution to the floor, unconditional, and we passed it with Democrats voting for it 209 to 1 in the House and 51 to 0 in the Senate. And again, it kept all the Pelosi, Biden, Schumer policies in place that are destroying the country and the spending that is bankrupting our kids and our grandkids. So I the country just couldn't afford to continue on this track. And so I joined my colleagues in voting to remove them.
2: Yes, and we are so grateful to you for that because, Congressman, you ran on and you were sent to D.C. to disrupt the status quo, to stop business as usual, because we cannot go on like this. And I've said this repeatedly, the laws of economics are eventually going to kick in here. No nation on the face of the earth in the history of the world has carried a $33 trillion plus uh, national debt and survived. I mean, these numbers are unfathomable, and unless and until we stop that, well, at some point, economics is going to stop it for us, and it's not going to be pretty. So, we send guys like you to Congress to step in and, and exert that kind of leadership before the absolute pain is inflicted on us. Um, over the last 10 months since McCarthy became Speaker in January... Have you guys approached him in private to say, look, man, you are not fulfilling your promises here. We don't want to go public with this. We don't want to do a motion to vacate. But what's your story, man? And has he ever tried to explain what his strategy was? Did you feel like you were being BS'd by him? I mean, what what led to this ultimate pulling of this political trigger?
1: Yes, uh, what came out of January there was changes to how Congress would operate, which will benefit Congress for decades to come if a future Congress doesn't change it. Things that relate to returning to regular order, you know, amendments being allowed from the floor to bills, a minimum amount of time to read legislation, uh, you know, working through the respective committees, single issue legislation, those sorts of things. In addition to the one that gets a lot of attention, the reinstating what had been in place for 200 years until Pelosi took it out—the vo- motion to vacate—because a secure, confident leader understands they serve at the pleasure of of those who who they represent as Speaker. Uh, but but yes, uh, so in addition to doing it in group forum in our Republican conference meetings, which we have once or twice a week, where the 221 of us get together. And in those meetings, we were begging and pleading with him and the entire conference to do what we said we would do to cut our spending back to pre-COVID levels for what's called non-defense discretionary spending, which amounts to about $100 billion, uh, to bring a balanced budget to the floor, uh, to uh, follow through on impeaching Mayorkas, as he promised to do when he became speaker, to bring the Term limits bill that he promised to do in order to become speaker and many uh, you know, to pass our 12 spending bills, which hadn't happened in 25 years to bring them to the floor for a vote, even let alone pass them. We all knew when September 30 deadline was, and we begged and pleaded with him on that in addition to on the debt ceiling. Uh, when again we had the left you know when you have one house of one branch of government you can't get everything you want but you should be able to get some of what you want and there are leverage points that you can use where you use the power of the purse and the debt limit was one leverage point and then the threat of a government shutdown was another leverage point and we forfeited both those but we begged him to use those to stand strong that we were behind him we would fight with him if he would lead us and after he failed to do the debt ceiling to your point we then uh a few days later, uh, some of the same people that voted uh, for the motion to vacate, uh, we decided to take down a House rule, a floor rule. You know, you, Most folks who are in Congress don't know this, but before you have a vote on a bill, you have a vote on the rule, which is the the uh, conditions on which the bill comes to the floor for a vote. And always on a rule, the whole majority votes for it and the whole de- minority votes against it. It's sort of a formality. Well, we had we blocked the rule and we shut down the floor. We brought everything to a screeching halt in June to force the speaker to sit back down the table. We served him notice. We meant what we said in January. We meant it when we blocked his speakership in January. And we intended to keep him accountable to the commitments that he made for the American people. This was not sustainable. And uh so we, tr- we, have, we tried along the way. We, we have had a seat at the table in negotiations and discussions because of what we negotiated in January. Conservatives, who had been previously shut out, uh, had, had were, were part of uh, those deliberations. But then time and again, the Speaker wouldn't bring the bills to the floor to cut the spending as he committed. I, I, I suspect, I believe, in an effort just to protect the moderates who didn't want to take the tough votes. They didn't want to have to vote to cut spending to do what we said we would do.
2: You know, it's a really important point that you're making, Congressman, that you warned him repeatedly. You know, people are acting like this nuclear option just came out of nowhere. It did not. You and your colleagues have been warning him, Matt Gates, Rosendale. All of your colleagues have been warning him over and over again, and you know maybe he thought you were just pretending or that you wouldn't call his bluff. I don't know what he was thinking, but and even up to the last minute, he was he was on Twitter saying, "Bring it on," and Gates replied, "Just did." I mean, maybe he didn't think that you guys had it in, in, in you. Maybe he thought there wasn't the political will or courage to do this. Maybe he thought you didn't have the votes, but I, I think he was pretty surprised <laughs> when it came. But as you're saying for months, you have been warning him if he didn't stand up and deliver on these promises, not just to you guys, but to the American people, more importantly, that you were going to pull this trigger. And I guess he assumed that you wouldn't. Um, You know, like I said, we cannot go on like this as a country, so somebody needed to stand up and say no, and we're really grateful that you did. Now, you are one of eight this week, but you're also a member of the broader Freedom Caucus. Are you surprised that more of your colleagues there and really across the GOP conference did not join you in removing McCarthy And why didn't they? Is it because he is such a prolific fundraiser the way Pelosi was for the Democrat uh, conference that they were afraid to cross him because of the money being channeled to their campaigns, because he was so powerful? What is the reason that Moore did not join you?
1: Well, I I think there's a broad array of reasons. and, And I don't want to disparage some of my courageous conservative warriors who didn't join us. They felt like it wasn't the right time. Uh, they were concerned about the unknowns of doing this. And and there's a lot of pressure to that effect. You know, there's a lot of pressure now to what happens from here. So there there, there were some principled, strong, courageous individuals who, who didn't join us. And I, I don't want to to lump everyone in together. That said, in Congress, you know, it's funny, before uh, the speaker, the motion of vacate vote that we had on Tuesday, and back in January, we were... Voting to prevent Speaker McCarthy from from former Speaker McCarthy from ascending to that position, the media would often say, "Well, well who are the other? Why is no one else a candidate? Well, who are the other candidates?" And I would tell them repeatedly in both occasions, until it is clear he's not going to be Speaker, you're not going to have members of the House who have stature and credibility and, and significant influence who would be perceived as viable candidates to get to a team. They're not going to step out of line. They're not going to stick their neck out. They're not going to raise their hand because that is career suicide so to speak Uh, it brings tremendous risk of retaliation and consequence and sadly and unfortunately most members look out for personal ambition and self-preservation they are risk averse and uh, that's why but we knew that as soon as if we could get McCarthy to withdraw back in January or if we were able to successfully remove him this week that we would have multiple candidates as have emerged now uh in addition there are some members of congress who are invested in the system you know they have played the game they have uh they have worked the swamp system to get to positions of, of leadership if you will committee assignments they want uh they're afraid of offending the donor class the elitist class the k street wall street lobbyists that are funding their campaigns and uh, and that they, they cater to the special interest group they're not going to say that of course they talk conservative back in their district But they are uh, influenced more significantly by others here in D.C. who are very upset, very upset that the establishment cart has been overturned and that the system has been disrupted. It's called a swamp for a reason. I call it the uniparty cartel, the uniparty swamp system or the swamp cartel. So uh, there's all kinds of reasons why members might not have wanted to vote for to to remove speaker mccarthy
2: well that is a a perfectly on point explanation congressman but here is the problem you clearly understand that the country is at a tipping point and we are at a war we are in a war for the future of the country and you are willing to do whatever it takes to stop us from going over the cliff at which point it will be too late to save the country And the fact that so many other Republicans, I mean, Democrats forget it. They are, they're the ones literally at war. But the fact that so many other Republicans don't seem to get how late it is in the country. The hour is very late here. And the, the idea that just a handful of you uh, understand that get it and are willing to act on it is really disheartening to a lot of people, I think. Um, And that's why we appreciate you so much. All right, let's talk about the road ahead. There are a lot of names being put forward for speaker, including the former president, Donald Trump, um, but there are others, your colleague Jim Jordan, uh, Steve Scalise, there are other names out there. You have said the next speaker has to be America First and a fighter. Is there anybody in particular that you're supporting or looking at very seriously?
1: Well, I've teased the candidates who reached out to me and I told them if they don't do what I want, then I'm going to endorse them. In all seriousness, I, I, I'm thankful that we're going to have a contest, we're going to have a competition, we're going to vet, challenge, test these candidates. They're meeting with small groups and individuals making phone calls and and visits and so forth as it should be. We're not going to have a coronation. We're going to have a contest and we will have our uh, candidate forum, our formal candidate forum on Tuesday. Uh, We will begin to vote soon thereafter. Uh, Obviously we're going to have to come together with 218, hopefully 221 unanimous, whether it takes a few hours or a few days, or I hope it doesn't take a few weeks, Uh, but we want to get it right, not get it fast. And, you know, the American people don't really care who the speaker is. They care about, you know, who's fighting for them to try to save the country. And we're hanging by a thread, as you've already noted. So I look forward to the process. I'm going to wait to to sort of weigh in on it uh, on, personally. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in a couple of the candidates that have been that have been mentioned.
2: Well, it's going to be a very interesting process over this next week. And next week is <laughs> is going to be amazing. You guys have been unfairly maligned. as chaos agents, which, you know, this is what the left does. They are masters of projection. So there are no more arsenic-driven chaos agents than the left, uh, than the Marxists trying to destroy the country, and they're pointing to eight Republicans who actually want to restore America's uh, solid fiscal foundation and bring us back to greatness as the chaos agents. Everything is completely inverted in the country today. Um, so again, we really appreciate you. What does this new speaker uh, race, what does it mean for a couple of things? What does it mean for the spending negotiations, because you guys have until now, November 17th, uh, to come up with a new way to fund the government while defunding the weaponization of government, ending Ukraine funding, enforcing the border. You've got that. You've got the Biden impeachment. You've got all these committees, the weaponization committee that we want to see reinvigorated. What does this process mean for all of that going forward from, say, now through the end of the year?
1: Well, the former speaker hasn't left the new speaker in, a, in an enviable position, obviously. Uh, this was a totally avoid, avoidable situation. All we had to do was to pass our 12 spending bills, cutting our spending, implementing our policy, send them to the Senate, get into no ga- negotiations in a strong position. And then you get a compromise that comes back that maybe conservatives can or can't vote for, but moderates can. And it'll be better than what we would happen if we just caved to the Senate and did what they wanted? They're not certainly not going to cut spending for us, that's for sure. So we'll be in a compressed timeline. But you know, my hope would be that we can get a speaker next week, and that'll leave us—that'll uh, still leave us, uh, you know, about five weeks uh, uh, to to get this done, uh, or, or actually thirty-five days, so leave us seven weeks to get this done. And you can pass, uh, uh, you know, a bill every week and, and get that done. And my hope would be that's what we will do. That we, we've got good conservative policies in these bills to, to reverse a lot of the harm the Biden administration is perpetrated on the American people with the Pelosi-Schumer policies. And that you know cut our spending, not as much as you or I would like, but at least cut it to some degree. Again, hopefully close to that $100 billion number. And But then we've got to be willing to stand strong. And when the Senate says no, we don't cave and surrender and say, golly gee, I wish that you would have said yes. So I guess we'll just... To another continuing resolution, or worse yet, an omnibus. And so we've got to buck up the conference. The conference has got to be willing to stand behind the new speaker and give him the support uh, that he needs. You know, at this point, all, all gentlemen running. Uh, give him the support that he needs, and not be afraid of a temporary pause in non-essential government operations, which happens with a temporary shutdown. We can't be afraid of that, not, you know, because it. The consequence of what we do, we will live with for years and decades ahead.
2: Yes, and history will not be kind. You know, Republicans are always much more comfortable in the minority, you know, in the the defensive crouch, whereas Democrats, and I said this in the monologue of today's show, Congressman, Democrats, when they get in power, they exercise raw power. And you guys, you know, you courageous band of aid actually exercised raw power this week. And everybody is shocked. Because so few Republicans ever really do that. Donald Trump did it as president. Everybody was shocked and appalled. They don't expect Republicans to do that. But in this case, I mean, the future of the country is hanging by a thread. And so it, you know, thank God for you guys, but it shouldn't just be eight of you. It should be the entire Republican conference. Uh, before we let you go, Congressman, one last question on the January 6th tape. Tapes, uh, Speaker McCarthy, when he came in, he pledged a, a mass release of of the J6 tapes, we have not seen them yet. We have seen like curated bits of them going to people like Tucker Carlson, etc. Are we going to see them? Will they see the light of day for the general public?
1: I think that'll be a question posed to all of the speaker candidates. And hopefully we will elect someone who will do just that.
2: Well, we all hope so, too, because we need the truth if we're going to plow ahead here and save the country. There is a lot ahead for all of you on the Hill, and I want to thank you so much for your time, Congressman, your courage, your principal stand, and your leadership.
1: Thank you, Monica. Great to be with you.
2: Well, it's a pleasure, and I hope you'll come back. Congressman Bob Good of Virginia, one of the truly good guys on Capitol Hill, truly America first, truly fighting for our country. Please go check him out at bobgoodforcongress.com and support him however you can. Thank you, Congressman. Okay, guys, please stand by. When we come back, we're going to talk to the one and only Darren Beatty about the big picture, where we are in this country, where we're going, and where the populist revolution stands. Sit tight. Well, I'm also absolutely thrilled to welcome back our good friend and fellow America First warrior, Darren Beatty. Darren is a former speechwriter for President Trump. He is one of the leading voices for justice for the January 6th defendants. And in fact, he assembled the January 6th report, which you can go get on Amazon. He was here last talking about that. And Darren runs the incredibly important website, Revolver News, which you can find at, find at revolver.news. So please go check it out all day, every day. In fact, he's got a brand new piece up there right now. I think it was posted yesterday, um, about a full comprehensive strategy For those of us on the right, average Americans, populists, those who are being targeted, not just Donald Trump, but certainly Trump all the way down to you and me, parents going to school board meetings, people just being randomly targeted by an out-of-control weaponized government, the strategy that we all need to fight back against the Marxist lawfare. So please go to revolver.news right now. Check out that article as well as everything else. Um, Darren is making news himself all over the place, and he is here with us once again. Hi, Darren.
0: Fantastic to be back with you.
2: Oh, well, it's always so great to have you here and to talk to you. And we are going to talk about your your article, which is a roadmap for all of us to fight back against the left's lawfare, but also your possible role in Elon Musk's Twitter revolution, because you seem to be laying out roadmaps for us everywhere. You are like a single-handedly saving the republic so we 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 appreciate you and we we just support everything you're doing darren thank you um let's start before we get into all of that with your reaction to what we saw transpire on capitol hill earlier this week we saw uh the latest incarnation the latest expression of the populist revolt in that we saw Kevin McCarthy removed as speaker, the first speaker ever in the history of the country to be removed in this way. Long overdue, uh, because we are long past being a constitutional republic, and most of our so-called representatives just are representing themselves. The country be damned, and we have had enough. So your reaction to what we saw this week?
0: Well, I was personally thrilled. I was uh, thrilled and entertained by the whole spectacle. And I think it's a it's an important and positive result. Um, and it certainly elevates Gates's position in the eyes of the base as it should. Um, I think one really perennially frustrating feature of being someone on the right, being a conservative, being an American patriot, especially in the past several years is we've been in a position of increasing awareness of the malfeasance going on of the corruption going on of the operations of the swamp so we're aware of what's going on but we've had no vehicle to deliver any sort of accountability and in its own way i think this is that's why this is so gratifying because it really is a measure of accountability for corrupt scumbags who are put in their position because they're supposed to represent the people and they're simply not. And, you know, McCarthy made a number of agreements that, you know, were predicated on his being put in that position in the first place. And he reneged on those agreements. And it's just sort of, yes, he did it and it's frustrating, but it's sort of recapitulates the broader posture of Congress and their disdain uh, this disdainful attitude toward uh, the American people. So I think it was a masterful political stroke. I think it was a rare win and rare little dose of accountability on behalf of the base and the American people. Um, so I'm generally quite pleased with it, and also I'll say maybe this you know speaks ill of my character, but I do enjoy seeing how frustrated and angry a lot of these people are. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's that's generally my response to it. Although I have to say I'm not you know an expert in the in, in the workings of of Congress and don't have any kind of special insight into the deeper sort of strategic elements of it. I'm more in this matter. Kind of an outside observer, but you know, also you know, a friend and ally of of Matt Gates, um, and I think he did something pretty remarkable here and should be commended for it.
2: Absolutely heroic, um, and we just spoke to Congressman Bob Good of Virginia, who was one of the heroic eight, and I asked him straight up, Darren, I was like kudos to you. Your bravery is to be commended. We're all out here supporting you. But why is it just eight of you? You know, this should be the entire, first of all, the entire Freedom Caucus, certainly, but the entire Republican conference. And the fact that so few have this kind of bravery and or so few understand how late it is in the country how the hour is so late, and we're at a genuine tipping point here. And if they're still, if they're still playing the rules, like they're playing the game like it's nineteen ninety four. Or like 1997 or 1983. Like we are so past that. We are so beyond that. And the moment is very precarious indeed. And for anybody, including the House Speaker, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, if you don't understand that, we got to bounce you. Sorry, it's not personal, but we love our country more than we love you.
0: Exactly right. And, you know, this was, you know, people say, oh, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, there's some speculation, maybe Trump Trump will get it. I mean, that would be great, but probably not tremendously likely. And so people say, well, the critics of this. The kind of, I'd say, the sincere critics of it, not the, the people who are just against anything good for the country, who say, well, you know, how is this going to amount to any sort of improvement? Well, there's another element to this. This is that there's a whole – D.C. is a very peculiar place. There's a whole kind of hidden economy of implicit and explicit um, IOUs. There's a whole hidden economy of favor trading, Uh, I did this for you, so you kind of owe me, and this or that. And to have someone like McCarthy, who is um, preeminently a transactional figure, I mean, that's what we mean by the swamp, really, um, removed in this way, it is profoundly disruptive to that whole kind of hidden favor economy that really um, greases the wheels of the swamp. And so... Again, I think that's a positive thing, but that might offer some insight into why so many people are so upset by it and why so few people, as you pointed out, only eight, um, actually uh, took a stand uh, against McCarthy at the end of the day.
2: This is why they hate the disruptors like Trump and Gates and others who are not beholden to special interests—they're not taking that kind of money. They—they they don't have to answer to anybody. They don't have to do the back scratching thing and the horse trading thing. They don't need to do it. All they're there to do is stand up for the Constitution and the American people. And in so doing, they're kicking over all of these stones, showing all of these earthworms and and cockroaches and all of the 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 muck. Um, and all of these creatures that have been engaged in this corrupt status quo forever. And they're extremely threatened by it and they have to destroy these people. I mean, Congressman Good has taken a lot of slings and arrows. Matt gates they want to try to expel him from Congress. Look at what they're doing to Donald Trump. All of these forces thought that they could crush the America First populism um, that was really given voice by Donald Trump. I mean, he, he is the leader of it, but he is, and the symbol of it, but he's just the latest sort of leader of it. This goes way back now for decades where the American people have had enough. So they thought they could crush America first populism by attacking Trump, now by attacking Gates, but they're wrong. And, and it is shocking to them whenever any Republican stands up and fights back. They're stunned and they're pissed and, and they're lashing out. I mean, look at what's happening to Trump and Gates, of course. But the bigger question for you, Darren, is what is all of this, including this success this week in removing McCarthy? What does this say about the durability of America first populism?
0: Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, we certainly have our victories. And as much as I would champion this victory as a rare victory, um the real victories are still kind of few and far between. You know, as I said, we're we're in a position of maximum awareness. We have a lot of the country, maybe half the country, who's sympathetic to um the movement, to the Trump movement, and so forth. but, Precious little, really, if any, real institutional power. And that is a problem that is not easily solved. I, you know, as being in the news and sort of being on the in news sphere, I'm acutely aware that there's tremendous demand for easy answers to that problem. Um, but there really are none. It's it's a much longer kind of strategic endeavor to uh, correct that issue, and so I think it's premature to say because you know the one hand you have these these victories, and um, but on the other hand you do have a corrupt system burying the front runner on the GOP side in indictment after indictment after indictment. You have a new reality in which it's not just you know, they'll try to smear you in the press, that's gotten diminishing returns as the American people have awakened to the fact that the press, they're just a bunch of lying scum, you know, really filth, sewage, one might even say. And so their their tactics have become ineffective. And that's a good thing. In, in one respect, in the other respect, it's kind of forced the system to up the ante to say, okay, we're not if we're not able to de-platform you and to destroy your reputation, we're going to have to take it to the next level and and bankrupt you or even the next level and indict you and possibly imprison you. And that's why I think, you know, this speaks to this article that you mentioned earlier that's available right now at revolver.news. I really encourage everyone to look at is that it used to be that the number one problem was the big tech censorship, the kind of conditions determining the dissemination of information that's still a big issue but the number one issue now is the fact that the justice system has become so thoroughly weaponized politically against the right and it's hard to see if there can be any meaningful and sustained and consolidated victories on the right until that problem um is really addressed and and corrected, and unfortunately, it's just not an easy, not an easy task at all.
2: You mentioned this article uh, that you have up now. I think it was posted yesterday. It- <clears throat> pardon me, at revolver.news. I recommend it to everyone. Everybody should be reading this site all day, every day. Anyway, can you sort of talk about some of the key points that you make in this article about how all of us can fight back against this lawfare, the weaponized DOJ, the weaponized FBI, the weaponized judicial system? And again, it's not just Donald Trump, although he is the most obvious symbol of this, and uh, he's certainly being critical. but there are so many other regular Americans who are going through very similar situations where the police are showing up at the door. The FBI is knocking at the door simply because they showed up to a school board meeting. What kind of actual uh, tactics, strategy do you lay out in this article that, again, everybody should read over at Revolver?
0: Yes. Well, that's a great point. It's not just Trump. Trump is the the head, the symbol of it all. But there's the January 6th defendants and then there's just random people. For instance, there was a case that we've reported on pretty extensively, just how outrageous it is, that some private citizen, a young guy in 2016, shared a meme mocking Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. And the Biden DOJ uh, sick the FBI on this individual. Arrested him, indicted him on a felony charge, which was a total innovation of the actual statute they were challenging. They were indicting him under it's like the Ku Klux Klan Act, which incidentally is the same thing that Trump's being charged with in another context. That's the conspiracy against rights, um, which was never used in the context of these political uh, prosecutions. So they charge this guy with a felony. He was convicted of the felony and is now facing up to 10 years in prison for sharing a meme mocking Hillary Clinton in 2016. That's how far this has escalated. And so this piece that I've mentioned really just says, look, we're not going to get anywhere as long as we're just complaining about it. Indignation will only get us so far. We need to use what we have at our disposal. And, you know, one thing about the right is unlike the left we have basically no institutional power at the federal level.
2: Right. So
0: well, if we're going to do a tit for tat and actually impose reciprocal costs on the left in terms of lawfare we're going to have to do it at a more local level at a state level or still more local something equivalent to the racket they have going on in Fulton County for instance. And so the piece is uh, multi-layered, but the first part that I think people find interesting is it actually serves up on a silver platter exactly some prosecutions that we can do, who the um, AGs are, the relevant AGs and DAs, and what specifically they can do to, to charge figures on the left as a kind of tit for tat. We need our own prosecution factories. If we're not doing the same thing this is never going to stop so just as one example we have a uh, gop republican um attorney general of alabama alabama is where the notorious and disgraced outfit the splc is the splc just a few years ago was scandal-ridden, where their top guy had to resign on uh, accusations of discrimination and harassment. And there's a lot more to that story. And by the same kind of prosecutorial standards that have been applied to the right, the Alabama AG could very well launch an indictment uh, uh, in relation to the malfeasance of the SPLC. That's one example. Another example. Eric Holder and his crowd of misfits, people remember Fast and Furious, there are a lot of things that can be done there, charging at the local level um, in Arizona. So we go through examples like that and sort of have implicit pressure on it because we tell you, here are the AGs who could make that happen, here are the DAs who can make that happen, here are the actual prosecutions that they can do. This is our answer to what they're doing to us, because until we impose real costs with, you know, the admittedly scant leverage that we have, nothing is going to change. And so that's the first part. The second part sort of gets into some of the more granular pitfalls of that and refines the strategy. Um, So... It's really important. Everyone needs to go see it. There's some hilarious passages in there as well. The description of the New York Attorney General's office is pretty amazing. Um, So that's enough of a teaser. Everyone needs to go read it, share it. And this is the blueprint going forward because unless we address this problem of the weaponization of the Justice Department, it doesn't really – nothing else really is going to matter. Yes, Um, that's right. Even, you know, quote unquote, even quote unquote winning elections isn't really going to matter because they're criminalized. You know, they can steal it and then criminalize anyone from questioning it. They've already set up the predicate. They're saying that, you know, Trump behaved criminally for questioning the outcome of the 2020 election. That when it boils down to it is what so many of these most severe charges amount to.
2: One hundred percent. And I'm so glad that you wrote this article. And again, everybody should go check it out at Revolver. But the question here is, and you're absolutely right, that we have to mirror what the left is doing with our people. And, and imposing a real cost for this kind of outrageous, unethical, unconstitutional, in many cases illegal behavior on the part of the left. That doesn't mean we have to act illegally, but with the resources that we have, we, we do have to turn the tables. The question, Darren, is the, these Republican DAs, these Republican AGs around the country, do they have the political will? Do they have the political courage to go ahead and do the things that you laid out here? I mean, we can elect these people all day long and yet, and, and we have for decades and nothing has ever changed. Why? Because the system sucks them in, they get beholden to certain interests, they are not brave enough, they're afraid of what the New York Times is going to say about them, a whole variety of reasons for why they don't act. And, you know, we can can lay this out and the roadmap is absolutely on point. As you have identified it, but unless and until we have really brave people in there, like Donald Trump, like Matt Gates, and and back them up when they do act in these situations, we're we're not going to make any progress, right? We need really courageous people in there, and you know it's one thing to bring a case as you just laid out, like the Alabama um, AG can bring the case. But then if it goes into a corrupt judicial system, now what? (laughs) Right? Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't start fighting at the ground level like you're saying. Of course we should. But we have to be more strategic about, I think, gaming it out for the next couple of levels. Um, and and understand that this is a long-term project. It's not going to be one DA bringing one case. That's critically important, but this is going to be a much longer-term project to begin to turn this thing around.
0: Absolutely. And again, there's there, there's a lot of... Uh, we addressed that pretty extensively in what I should say is not really the fine print, but just the part at the end that goes into the more sort of fine elements of strategy there, And it's worth saying that the the prosecutions don't even need to be, you know, successful with a big S to actually be politically successful because so much of it is just, you know – Taking up resources, taking up time, slowing the person down, responding to what they're doing, and creating a disincentive for them them to keep doing it, so there are many sort of definitions of success beyond you know actually getting somebody in prison and you can look at the model for that like the um, the uh, the state A g office uh, in New York they don't have too many high-profile convictions, but they've caused a tremendous amount of headaches for their political, um, political enemies uh, across the board. So um, that's kind of a model there. And as for the courage aspect, absolutely. And, you know, that's a necessary part of it. That's a precondition for it. And in order to get there, part of the, uh, the issue is, just directing our focus and resources to this specific problem. You know, when you look at how capital is raised and deployed on the right, there's not a lot of awareness that this is actually the most important high leverage play is to make sure that, you know, it's great we have a Matt Gaetz in Congress. We need Matt Gaetz in every, you know, district attorney's office in in a red area, in every state AG's office. We need Matt Gaetz all across the board as, you know, as, as chess pieces in this particular game, and uh, you can't just snap your fingers and do that. But you also can't do it if there's no broad recognition that this is actually a real priority. And so that's you know what I'm hoping to uh, correct in part with this article.
2: Well, it's a brilliant article. And again, everybody should read it. It is, you make a really important point there too, Darren, about the process is the punishment. And for those of us who have taken slings and arrows on behalf of President Trump and America First and and our principled stands, um, we can all attest that the process is the punishment. Donald Trump. Matt Gates they can <laughs> they can all attest the process is the punishment and it's about time that we use uh the available tools in our toolbox as well to inflict some real pain for their abuses of power onto them um because that's actually justified versus what they're doing to us which is wholly unjustified um all right in our remaining moments with you Darren I got to ask you about this recent story About a 3000 word article posed, uh, it was posted on revolver.news a few days before Elon Musk became Twitter's largest shareholder. And that very similar to the one that is up on revolver now about lawfare. That one also laid out a plan for Musk to gain full control over Twitter and reform and transform it into a truly free speech platform. It's been back in the news recently um, because somebody speculated that perhaps you uh, wrote that article and perhaps that you were the one to send Elon Musk some anonymous texts pointing him in this direction. So my question to you, dear friend, is are you the guy who moved Musk to buy Twitter and to begin his crusade of change?
0: You know, the whole thing is is really funny because this... You know, I'm I'm happy to have this you know in really important article sort of revisited or re-upped in the news cycle, as it were. Um, the The notion that these quote unquote disinformation uh, hack journalists uh, have discovered something new is very bizarre because it's not as though this article is you know a hidden thing. This is a public. Published article. I've spoken about the article on numerous news outlets. I went on the Tucker Carlson program to lay out the very blueprint described in the article. And so, of course, people texted Elon about it. My guess would be multiple different people texted him about it. And of course, you know, that's going to have uh, a degree of influence on how he would approach things. But that's never, that's not really new information. So I think what's new here is the um, particular subset of disinformation journalists who are sort of on the defensive now um, are increasingly concerned with Elon's boldness. And um, I don't know if it's a political transformation, but he's certainly seeming to become more enlightened on things. And I think that's really starting to scare these people such that they need to uh, create all kinds of narratives that in their view will sort of encourage him to maybe weaken his position on things. And I don't think that's going to be successful. So I think this recent round of reporting is really driven more by um, uh, Elon's, uh, the perception of Elon's political acceleration uh, in recent weeks and months, than anything new that's actually happened in relation to this article, but um, you know that's just my speculation on it. But you know, these people, as we all know, that we've heard this term disinformation. It's been one of the leading censorship predicates. It's a total joke. The network of journalists who are these dis- on the disinformation beat are some of the most um, disgusting and low and mediocre yes. people you could possibly imagine and this one particular guy who's you know, just obsessed with me uh Aden Collins um he's been you know he he's he said he he and his colleague have been working for 7 months to try to like figure out who this person was that sent this one particular text to Elon and it's, you know, I'm, he got, I'm sure he got a lot of text. So, so the fact that they're putting so much stock in this is, um, frankly, kind of amusing to me. And it underscores what uh, pathetic and ultimately petty lives these types of journalists lead.
2: They are the worst <laughs> I have to say, uh, having dealt with them my entire career, and you too—they um, are literally like the the worst kind of people. They're just, most of them are liars. They're just propagandists. They're despicable human beings. They're just awful. They're awful, so uh, whatever we can do to push back on the propaganda press, I am all for as well. But it does tell you, Darren, how incredibly powerful you are and what a threat you are, like Gates, like Trump. Um, if you're over the target, you're getting this kind of incoming and you're getting this kind of attention from these despicable people, so that tells us all that you are definitely doing something right. Um, I want to recommend everybody to revolver.news. Please go check out that website. You should be looking at it all the time anyway. But for those two important pieces, including this one laying out the roadmap for Musk to turn Twitter around into a true free speech platform, although that's debatable, he keeps playing around with this algorithm. It's making me crazy, Darren. (laughs) I'll
0: say just as a caveat to all of this, um, you know. I wish there was a little bit more influence because I will. I, I think that objectively, on the whole, Twitter is much better now um, under Elon's uh, tutelage, under his leadership. But for my position personally, I'm actually, believe it or not, ironically, because our reporting on the Elon stuff, like we were... You know the the main reporters when it came to the whole takeover in the first place, um, you know main proponents of it in many ways. But my personal uh, situation is that I'm more shadow banned now than I was under the you know the the previous leadership of all of these you know truly censorious nut jobs. So um, there could be a, you know multiple reasons for that, but it's definitely, uh, there's still some issues to be ironed out in the algorithm. I think that's fair to say.
2: Yes, it's making me crazy. I'm probably investing way too much of my emotional energy (laughs) into Twitter, Um, but the fact it's so erratic, like you and I were deeply, deeply shadow banned under the previous regime for obvious reasons, and then literally the moment that the Twitter deal closed for Musk, they must have lifted all of the suppression algorithms because I would literally type in, like, hey, guys, As a tweet and within like 15 minutes, I'd have like 3000 likes, right? Um, it would just zoom and then they started playing with the algorithm. And now we're back to being shadow banned, but it really is erratic because there are some tweets and I'm sure you find this too that absolutely take off and you're getting 12,000, 15,000 likes. And then you'll do another really hot one and it gets like 200 likes.
0: No, it's really interesting. And, you know, I do think that there's political stuff going on. I think it's, there's still uh, political levers in the algorithms, whether intentional or not. Um, But but that's definitely still a factor. But there's this additional factor, which, uh, you know, there's been um, not unambiguously positive incentives Kind of worked into the new Twitter under Elon that really encourages a certain type of engagement farming that I think collectively doesn't really enhance the quality of content on the platform. And so what you'll see is, you know, a lot more people just posting videos of dubious provenance, often mischaracterized, that videos that are just sort of designed to get people to respond or and and because now people are getting paid for the engagement too and so you know that you're seeing a lot more of these things where there's a video of uh say some customer who is gets into an argument at a restaurant and you say was this person out of line and you know everyone (laughs) has to chime in on it that sort of thing um the engagement bait and um I think that's it's kind of an interesting possibility that the kind of I don't know if we'd call it capitalism, but the kind of economic incentive structure of the payment system possibly could degrade the quality of discourse on Twitter more than the direct and aggressive political censorship of his predecessors. I'm not willing to go that far and to say that, but it's just it's an interesting possibility because I do think one element that you know is kind of unfortunate. It's a double-edged sword because it's great that people are getting paid for their content, but on the other hand, it does create certain types of incentives for certain types of sort of lowest common denominator. Some I call it like cattle slop, um, just kind of lowest common denominator content to get to maximize engagement and maximize. Uh, payoffs, and that's the kind of stuff that the algorithms like. So the algorithms are, um, you know, catered catered to the masses and all that goes with it, and that isn't necessarily a good thing for the quality of the public square.
2: Yes. That's right. So not only is our content, you you and me, uh, we're being suppressed because we're considered too hot, right? We're considered too controversial because we might uh, post something true about the January 6th defendants or something true about uh, the positive effect of President Trump. Oh, God forbid, right? But the, the, all of that stuff then gets demonetized. So it's suppressed and then you're not making as much money as if you put out the cattle slop. Um, you know, sort of the generic kind of stuff. So anyway, we'll see how it shakes out. But thank you for that original article laying out the roadmap for Musk because I do agree with you. I think it's a far better and more important platform, more honest platform. Uh, than when the previous regime had it. So thank you for that. And also thank you for this new piece up at revolver.news right now on lawfare and how we can all fight back and how we can bring pressure to bear on our elected representatives, like our local DAs, like our state attorneys general, that's the kind of thing, they're not going to respond, they're not going to do this because it takes a lot of courage. They, they, some of them may do it because it's the right thing to do, but they will absolutely do it if we band together and bring the honest pressure to bear on them to take these kinds of actions and let them know that we have their backs because they are going to get attacked if they do it. So all of this is such an important conversation. And Darren, I want to thank you so much for being here and for taking the time.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Can't wait to do it again.
2: Okay, guys, what a show, right? Thank you so much for joining me as always. We appreciate you and we appreciate you checking out all of our great sponsors as well. Thank you so much for that. Have a fantastic rest of your week, a great weekend, and I will see you right back here next week to tackle the new speaker and also so much more. Child mutilation, John Schneider is going to be here. Incredible lineup next week, so don't miss a second. I'll see you then. This episode of the Monica Crowley Podcast was produced by Behakal Entertainment LLC.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day.